Hello and welcome into Patient Preferred Presents. My name is Jay McFarlane and today I'm very excited to introduce you to Dr. Norman Sheely. Now, Dr. Sheely specializes in holistic pain management. He has pioneered several innovative, safe, and effective pain treatments, and he's the founder of the Sheely Soren Wellness Institute. Now, they have successfully treated over 30,000 patients. We'll talk to him about his long journey with pain management and how he developed his unique treatments and how he feels about being named a patient preferred physician. Well, doctor, first of all, I want to thank you for joining us. And I want to congratulate you for being named top patient preferred physician for 2021. What does that, what does that mean to you? You know, I'm just happy to be able to work, to be quite (laughs) honest. To me, my job is to help people and it is to help people who flunk conventional medicine. Mm. (laughs) That's what I've specialized in for 50 years. Well, that's fantastic. I want to dive into that a little bit more. But first of all, I'd like to know, and and I love to ask this question, why a doctor? I mean, it's it's a difficult road uh, and uh, difficult thing to get into. What made you decide to practice medicine? At age four, out of the blue, I announced to my family I wanted to be a doctor. I don't know where that came from. There were no physicians in the in the family that I know of. We had a family doc who was a friend of the family. Maybe that was it. But I've never lost that. At age 16, I read a book, Magnificent Obsession, and I suddenly wanted to be a neurosurgeon. So mm. it's been my life. So you're calling almost from day one. Yeah. Wow, that is that is incredible. I'm still trying to decide what I want to be when I grow up. So... <laughs> <laughs> Hey, as long as you're having fun, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then, and then, so to become a doctor, you knew as as a child you wanted to be a doctor. Why? Uh, why did you steer towards pain management and chronic pain management? Well, in medical in medical school, I I was somewhat of an uh, well. I, I on two occasions I fooled the the staff. I made a diagnosis of sarcoidosis of the pituitary one weekend and rounding that says you can't do that you're a medical student <laughs> well, it, well we actually wrote a paper on it It was the only case that ever had at duke university and then when i was in my neurosurgical residency i was appalled at how we were treating chronic pain mm. in those days since the early 1920s we had been doing something called a chordotomy you take the patient to the operating room take the bone off two layers of the back of the spine and then take a piece of a razor blade, I hope it was sterile, <laughs> and break it off and cut the front half of the spinal cord with a razor blade of all things. Wow. To me, I thought, I thought this is barbarian. Yeah. And it was, in my opinion. So when I finished my neurosurgical residency, I spent three years doing research on pain physiology. And I figured out that we could control pain by stimulating the skin and mm. the spinal cord, like putting a pacemaker over the spinal cord. The interesting thing is when I produced, when I presented that to neurosurgeons, it, it was only animal work at the moment. They screamed, you, you, idiot, you don't know what you're talking about. Two years later, when I'd done only six patients, every neurosurgeon in the room wanted to do the procedure. <laughs> and it's still being done all over the world. So that's how I came out of the box, so to speak, by saying this is unacceptable to cut the spinal cord with a razor blade. 
Yeah, and did you ever think all these years later you would have your own institute and you would have have treated 30,000 patients at this point? <laughs> well, you know, interestingly, I thought I was just going to be a neurosurgeon. Mm -hmm. But then all of, all of a sudden, I was being sent 400 people a year for the spinal cord stimulator. And I only would do it in 6% of them. 94% of them had had five unsuccessful back operations. Wow. And, were on, and they were on Percodan and Valium. I didn't know what to do with that. To me, they had already failed. So I said, somebody's got to find out what to do with all these people who don't fit conventional medicine. So on October 15th, 1971, I, I decided I started what I called the Pain Rehabilitation Institute. And it was a great success from the beginning. We, we actually, at, at first, we kept people in the hospital for a month. And I retrained the brain hmm. and used my electrical stimulation and all kinds of psychological things. But in 1972, early, I learned about autogenic training. Autogenic training has been around since 1912. When I learned it in 1972, in 19, yeah, 1972, there were 2,600 scientific references. Today, there are 28,000 scientific wow. references of the benefits of autogenic mm -hmm. training. So after a couple of years, I went back to get a PhD in psychology to understand what does this mean to retrain the brain? And out of that, I created what I call biogenics. Now we have 68 different mental exercises for retraining the brain. So it's, it's the hallmark. And, and all of a sudden, I learned all my patients had other, about five other diseases. They didn't have just pain. They had hypertension. They had diabetes. They had gallbladder. Mm -hmm. you know. So it really became a system for treating chronic disease, which flunks conventional medicine. My favorite statement is, I don't know, even today, a single chronic disease for which I would allow conventional medicine. Really? Really? It's, it sucks, Nate. I'm being kind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but all, con all conventional chronic treatment eventually fails. If it does not succeed within three months, it's never going to succeed. Mm. And that is a remarkable statistic. <clears throat> Hypertension. Let's, let's just look at the common one. Hypertension. Forty-five mm -hmm. percent of Americans have high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. The success rate with conventional medicine using three drugs is forty-five percent. That means they have a fifty-five percent failure rate. Right. And in the forty-five percent who have the blood pressure control, most of them wind up with chronic fatigue, and if you're a male, erectile dysfunction. Hmm. I can control and get off those drugs 99.9% .9 of people with hypertension with no drugs whatsoever. Wow, that, that, is, uh, that is fantastic. So the typical type of patient who comes to you, they've already gone through all of these things and essentially given up and then they, they come to you as a last resort? Exactly, or, or when they begin to feel the, the complications, the so-called side effects. You know, every drug has so-called side effects. In fact, when I was in medical school, I finished 65 years ago, hmm. when I was in medical school, it was announced that 16,000 people died every year from taking aspirin. Wow. Every single drug has complications ranging from death to heart disease to brain damage, immune dysfunction. There's no safe 
long-term drug. Mm. And we have a lot of people who are on regular prescriptions their entire lives at this point. Yeah, and and not just one, but two, three, four, five, six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I know you talk about uh, the junctures representing the four main fields of stress. And I, I've heard you say that that all illness or it derives from these junctions. Can you can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, actually, Sir William Osler, who's sometimes called the father of American medicine, early in the last century, gave a lecture in which he talked about stress as the cause of disease. Now, stress is any pressure, physical, mental, emotional, radioactive, or spiritual. Mm. So it's stress leads to anger, and anger often leads to guilt and or depression. So basically, it's more pressure than you personally, individually can handle. And it doesn't matter what it is. If it's eating junk food, if it's eating poison, mm -hmm. and, and I, mean, I mean, poison today is one of the big ones. You know, basically, the world is poisoned, largely because of Monsatan. I call them Monsatan because they put out the worst poison in the history of the world, ground up. Oh, okay, yeah. 75% of the rain throughout this country is loaded with Roundup. Wow. There, there is no such thing as organic. In my opinion, it is unethical to call something organic unless it was grown in a greenhouse with filtered air and filtered water. Because Roundup is everywhere. It's everywhere, and it's poison. Mm -hmm. But secondly, 72% of Americans live in cities where the city poisons you with fluoride. In my opinion, the dental industry is more evil than the tobacco industry. Hmm. They started off with mercury being 50 to 60% of silver fillings, and that's very poison. But, round, but fluoride has dropped the fertility rate in men from 150 million to 40 million. Hmm. When it gets to 20 million, men are infertile, and we've had men infertile since the early 90s down at below 20 million. So if we don't get rid of fluoride in the city water within the next 20 years, there will be no more babies. Wow, wow. I think you also, you talked about stress. I think a, a lot of us think of stress as it's just emotional. Uh, but from my <laughs> own experience, I know that stress wreaks havoc on, on my insights. It affects me physically in a very dramatic way. And, and so can you elaborate a little bit more on that? The, kind of the long-term effects of stress. Okay, let's look at certain habits. There are five, to me, absolutely basic, essential habits. The top of the list, and the number one actual cause of disease today is excess weight. A body mass index above 24 increases your risk of dying the same as smoking one to three packs of cigarettes a day. Mm. 72% of Americans are overweight. 36 or 8% are truly obese. And that means they're 40 or more pounds overweight. There's actually an article on this several years ago called Premature Death. And the one cause, number one cause today of premature death is obesity. Hmm. Interestingly, number two is still smoking. 22% of adults still smoke. Now, the next important thing is eating a minimum 
of five, but preferably eight to ten servings of fruits and vegetables a day. The average American gets 2.2. Right. And I always say, and French fries and ketchup are not a vegetable. (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) So here we are with the average American missing the single most important thing in their nutrition, which is Mm -hmm. antioxidants and vitamins. So that 80% of the food available is junk. One of my other favorite statements is, I went to McDonald's in 1962. It opened up in Cleveland where I lived at the time. I took one bite and I spit it out and threw it away and I've never been back. Really? You couldn't pay me. I would rather starve to death than go to a fast food restaurant. (laughs) Now, in the grocery stores, 80% of the food is junk. If it's not in the outer aisles where you have the vegetables, the fruits, the dairy, the eggs, the meats, don't buy it. Everything that's in a plastic, cardboard can (laughs) is not good. I don't buy canned vegetables. Just forget about that stuff. Forget about it. Now, Mm -hmm. the only thing I will buy is unequivalent pure apple juice. I wouldn't even buy any other juice in a grocery store. Mm. I suppose if you like it, you can buy frozen orange juice. That would be okay, maybe. But most of the things have been processed, and I wouldn't buy them. I don't know any commercial cereal that I would buy. None of them. None. Hmm. If it's in a box, I wouldn't buy it. Yeah. It's junk. Yeah. So, now, I happen to live on a farm, and I have a 50, just 50 by 50 feet garden. But I can raise all my own vegetables. Mm-hmm. I don't need to buy any vegetables, to say the least. And I can raise some of my fruits, like, you know, raspberries and strawberries and blackberries and some pears and apples, that sort of thing. Um, but I, in the grocery store, would go bankrupt. They depended upon me. <laughs> That's right. And if everybody listened to your recommendations, right? I, I know at your, <laughs> at your institute, you have developed some uh, very innovative and unique techniques. And you've talked a little bit about them. Uh, for treating chronic pain. Can you elaborate a little bit more on those? Yeah, the interesting thing about TENS, when I discovered it and when it first came on the market, these little gadgets cost five or $700. Mm-hmm. Today, they're over. The, you don't have to have a prescription. You can buy them for 50 bucks online. Now, TENS unit, you put above and below or on other side of the pain. However, there's specific acupuncture points you can stimulate which have nothing to do specifically with the pain. For instance, on the inside and outside behind your ankle bone, on either side of the Achilles tendon, there's bladder 60 and kidney 3. Those are two acupuncture points on each side. You put the tens on those four acupuncture points, and I'll say in pain all the way up to here, it'll control it 80% of the time. Hmm. That's all they need to do. Now, there are other types of things, but that's just one of them. Now, and I still occasionally recommend a spinal cord stimulator because you can actually put them in now through a needle. You don't have to do surgery. You just put it in through a spinal needle. And that was my original thought. But then, several years ago, or actually five or six years ago now almost, I had had an idea that the energy centers, the, the electrical energy centers of the body, the brain is an energy center. The neck is an energy center. The heart area is an, you know, is sci- sci- sciatica, etc. Mm-hmm. There, these are called chakras in 
metaphysics. I found an engineer who would um, make for me specific chakra sweeping frequencies, starting with 5.83 cycles per second and going up to seven times 7.83 plus two. It's <laughs> plus two. Okay. That, that, that's, that's the frequency. And it works. It, it, the thing that interested me the minute I discovered it, however, is that you can put it anywhere in your body and it makes you relax. So when you put it on your head, it's the greatest invention in the history of the world for severe anxiety. Mm. I mean, you can calm down almost anybody within 30 minutes by That's using a, this. Well, yeah. I was to say, that's a really big deal because right now we're treating anxiety with more prescriptions. Every mood drug is dangerous. Mm. It creates, it increases your risk of suicide. Mm -hmm. Now, I got to tell you my favorite story about psychiatry. When I was in medical school in the junior year, there was a question on the final exam in psychiatry, list five characteristics of a good psychiatrist. <laughs> I wrote crazy as hell five times. <laughs> I was called in. Yeah. The Politburo, they threatened <laughs> to flunk me. And I didn't say blank, by the way. Yeah. I said, would you like me in this blank, 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 blank course again next year, you bastards? Yeah. They didn't dare front me. I have never changed my mind. I would say, in my opinion, 99% of, of psychiatrists are crazier than any patient I've ever seen. <laughs> so I don't believe in and will not allow mood drugs. I don't care whether it's a tranquilizer or an antidepressant. Actually, there are four major scientific articles. One, even in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is supposedly our most prestigious journal, mm -hmm. they say if all the negative results on antidepressant drugs had been allowed to be published, the net result would be zero. Wow. The pharmaco mafia refuses to allow publication of 75% of all negative results hmm. on every drug, not just antidepressants. So I think the pharmacal mafia is truly a major part of the evil empire. Interesting. Uh, looking, I was looking through some of the trainings you've developed. One that stood out to me that I'd like to know more about, it's past life therapy. Tell me a little bit about ah, this. Yes. I grew up in a conventional Southern Methodist church, pretty conventional stuff. But I never had the idea of possibly of reincarnation one way or the other. In 1972, I was at a meeting in Virginia Beach and I heard that there was going to be a demonstration of this therapy. So I, I went in and watched it being done and I said, well, I've got to do that. I, 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 but I can't do it in front of all these people. <laughs> I said, maybe I was a prostitute in a Greek war camp. <laughs> I, I, that's never come up, so I don't think I was. But so I said, I asked uh, the presenter if I could have a private session and he did a past life session with me and I saw myself as a physician in Egypt 3,000 years ago in a cholera epidemic hmm. and immediately after that I began to do past life therapy on patients I have done hundreds and hundreds of them in fact I sometimes doing a, a group session where each person in, in up to 200 people can be having the same experience or their, their individual, of course, experience. And 
in serious illness especially, the most serious illnesses, almost always there's what I call unfinished business from a death in a previous life. Hmm. Now, I personally know 30 of my own past lives, going back now 3,500 years. And they have been confirmed by excellent intuitive individuals. And half of them, I just, they, I know them spontaneously. So, uh, anytime somebody is not responding even to our basic holistic approach, I offer them a past life therapy session. It takes an hour and it can be amazingly healing. I could give you many examples. I mean, I've had people literally with one session like that get well from cancer or severe intractable pain. Wow. That's amazing. I, you know, I, I don't know about all that stuff. I do know that as a parent, each one of my children arrived here with a unique personality, a unique skill set. <laughs> and, you know, you talk about nature versus nurture and, uh, you know, I say 98% of who they are is how they arrived. And I don't, that, you know, where did that come from? Where did those skills come from? Where did those talents come from? That type of thing. Almost inevitably, when you really look into it, you have had lives together before. Mm. I know, for instance, my entire three children and my wife and I were a family just like that 2,000 years ago in Rome. Wow, that's amazing. And I know everything that happened in that life to, to the family. Now, we haven't always been together, but we've had times when I was just like I was a twin with my daughter, we were both male in Japan once. Hmm. And I and the other son and the other and my daughter, etc., have had lives together when we weren't a family together. The only family we've had other than this one was two thousand years ago. Hmm. But it's true of all your friends too. I mean statistically speaking, if we really got into it, the chances are we've known one another in a previous life. In fact, one of my favorites is Edgar Casey. You know who Edgar Casey was? I do not know. Okay, it was, there was a book called The Sleeping Prophet, or There Is a River, another one, on a man named Edgar Casey back in, well, the, the early part of the last century. He died in 1944 or five. He was a psychic. He did almost 15,000 psychic readings on people, and he was thought to be 80 plus percent accurate in giving a medical diagnosis and treatment program. And my favorite quote from Edgar Casey is, every time you walk down the street, you pass someone you've known in a past life. Mm. Now, I know not only, for instance, about my experience with my wife and my three kids, but for instance, my current partner, Dr. Sergey Soren, we were together with St. Francis of Assisi 800 years ago. Mm. And the St. Francis is reincarnated. I was giving a lecture up in uh, Vancouver back in 2005 and had nothing to do with past life therapy. The reincarnated St. Francis was in the audience. He came down to, he recognized me as one of his companions. Really? <laughs> and we've become friends in this life again. Now, interestingly, he is a neurosurgeon. The only other neurosurgeon I know who even know what meditation is. <laughs> but he has, he has agreed. I have met the other three closest companions 
there were four of us. Three of us went to Assisi in 2015 to visit the temple and set And in the basement where his casket is in the is actually up in the wall, mm-hmm. down on the floor, there are brass plaques with the names of the four closest companions. I was, for instance, Father Rufino, but I have met the other three, and we're now friends again in this life. Hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, I, we could spend hours talking about that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm just, I have a tally here, 36 books. Uh, y- you have uh, the book, 90 Days to Self-Help. It sold more than 100,000, 130,000 copies. Uh, television uh, appearances, radio appearances. You have uh, a pain management institute. How do you find time for all this? I, I mean, it, it's just, I feel like we all have the same time in the day, but somehow you've managed to to do so much already. You know, I was something of a nerd all the way through medical school, I would say. I, all my time was spent studying and learning. I, I, I had exercise, but other than exercise and eating and sleeping, I would say, you know, at least 16 hours a day I was studying. Mm-hmm. And now I get up at four o'clock every morning. I spend two hours exercising physically. Then I have breakfast. Mm. Then I either go to the clinic and see patients, or if I don't, some days I just work at home. But when I'm working at home, I'm writing or reading. I have read well over 15,000 books. And I, I just, I love writing and I love reading. So other than gardening and exercising, that's my favorite activity. Wow. So does that mean there's more books on the horizon that we can watch for? I've got a, a couple in, in the hopper right now. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And any, any particular focus that you've been focusing on, on chronic pain? Is that still your emphasis or are you, oh, you being guided in other directions? Well, also, but actually the latest one, I've, I've got to polish a little bit, is the will of the soul. I think it's extremely important to recognize that we are not just a human being. We have a body, we have a mind, we have emotion, but we, as an individual, are a soul. Mm -hmm. And we communicate with God and the divine through the spirit. Mm -hmm. So it's about that aspect, which is critically important to me. Um, And I'm just in the process of finishing one called uh, Restore Common Sense. In my experience, common sense is the uncommon commodity. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, we say common sense, but that's not really what we're referring to. We're referring to <laughs> <laughs> uncommon sense for sure. Uh, exactly. Do- yeah, doctor, it's been such a pleasure getting to know you. I wish we had more time, uh, but thank you so much for sharing your life experience, your expertise. I think you've given us some great advice and a lot to think about. Well, thank you. Now, I'm going to offer your audience something. Yes. If they, if they would like a copy of Autogenic Training, all they have to do is send me an email. Just say, send me a copy. Okay. And I will, I will send it. It is, in my opinion, the single most important thing you can do to train your brain. So norm at normshealy.com. And I'll be happy to send them a copy of Autogenic Training, my favorite. Doctor, that's fantastic. I, I love your desire to help people. I know that you've changed the lives 
of tens of thousands of people, probably hundreds of thousands when you look at your books and your television appearances. Uh, keep going strong. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Blessings. Once again, I want to thank Dr. Sheely for joining us and for his years of helping people with chronic pain. It really is amazing when you think about it to hear how many people had absolutely given up before they turned to him and got real help. It's easy to understand why he has been named a patient-preferred physician. My name is Jay McFarland, and I hope you've enjoyed this edition of Patient Preferred Presents. <music>